Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Our key scripture this morning is coming from Romans chapter 5. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, that would be fantastic. Otherwise, I'll read it here for you today. This is actually a passage that we has been read in various parts of our service um, frequently, but we're going to look at it one more time again here this morning from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we, will, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I have a question for you to think about this morning, and that is this. Do you consider yourself to be a loving person? If you're wondering if this is a trick question, it might be. In my study uh, for this week, this verse came up in one of the devotionals that I was reading. And again, it's one that we are pretty familiar with. And it's a verse that brings a great deal of hope and clarity to us. Because it tells the story of God's love, Jesus' sacrifice, and just how life-changing of an experience that is to be for us. But when I read the, this verse this week, I, it was not really the greatness of God that spoke to me as I read it again. Actually, the thing that struck me the most was just how different God is from us. Look at how Paul describes the scenario because he sets up this whole thing in a particular way. He says that God chose the right time to die for us. The right time to die for us. Not the wrong time. The right time. And so we should ask, well, God, when was the right time to die for us? It was not when we were doing well. It was not when we had apologized. It was not when we had come and set everything right or straight. It was not when we were reaching new heights in order to be good people. Instead, it was when we were hopeless, undeserving, and lost in our sin. Then Paul makes this statement. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. It's a simple truth, which kind of seems like a throwaway within the context of everything that we're reading there. But Paul is actually trying to tell us something about ourselves. And what he's saying is this. If you were to choose to die for someone, what are the circumstances under which you would choose to do so? Well, they are pretty few, aren't they? I mean, even if you were just to be completely 100% straight and literal... Who would you die for? 
And there are probably only a few people on the face of the planet that you would choose to die for. And then the circumstances have to be right in order for us to die for them because Paul recognizes something that is very true. Very rarely will someone die for someone else. Although sometimes for a really, really good person, someone might dare. Someone might think about it. They might consider it. They might do something to stop this. Call it logic, call it self-preservation, call it whatever you want. But the bottom line that Paul is making in this one little point that we skip over is this. We are not like God. We are not like God. Because from verse 8 again, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were as far away from God as we could possibly get, Christ died for us. He made that choice to demonstrate the love of God. And in the book of 1 John, which we're studying, the writer goes so far as to say the very definition of love is Jesus Christ dying for us. And I have two reactions to this dichotomy. The first one is... We have an infinite number of reasons to not love someone else, let alone not die for them. Right? I'm tired, therefore I can be mean. I'm hungry, therefore I don't have to speak to you. You said something to me 15 years ago that I didn't like. You know what it is. Don't act like you don't. We have an infinite number of reasons, which tells me this. We are infinitely more petty, self-absorbed, narrow-minded, short-sighted, and unloving than our God. In some ways, we stand in place and wait for the world to revolve around us. The second thing that I appreciate is this. Praise God that He is not like us. Praise God that He is not like us. Now, it would be easy to get down on ourselves about this. But instead, I would like for those words to challenge you to be motivated. Because God's love, this kind of love, this kind of sacrifice that gives when it is undeserved, changes the world. It changes lives. It opens up the realm of of a new life and a new possibility that is not possible without this kind of love and sacrifice. It has changed your life. And it's true. It takes effort to love like God. It takes effort to put aside our hurts and our feelings. It takes effort to not keep score and decide who is more deserving. But wouldn't we rather love more like God and less like us. Isn't it worth it? We're going to be in the book of 1 John, so if you have your Bibles, please open up there. <coughs> Last week, uh, 
we started our study on the book of First John, and there are some uh, important sort of base concepts that I want to review for us really quick. Uh, what we saw from chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is this, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. We, however, are sinful creatures, and there is darkness inside of us. And so John tells us that the way this problem is solved is that Jesus purifies us from our sins so that we can walk in the light with God. And there were two things that we kind of drew from this that I want to reiterate for us this morning. The first one is that we must live in the full realization of the power of sin in our lives. This means that we know we make mistakes, we know we make, we are, that we fail in a lot of different ways, and, and therefore the image that we present to the world is not one of moral superiority, but rather one of never-ending dependence upon God. There's a thought I want to say right now. It's really going to tie in later. I had, I had a couple of good conversations during the break. But um, I, I do talk a lot, I, I will admit. I talk often, and I talk a lot, and I talk for long periods of time. But that's not what I meant. What I meant was I do talk a lot about the state that we are in, about us being sinners, about us being, about us being failures. And I actually, uh, I had a good friend who was here this morning say, you know, Bryce, you might want to back off on that a little bit because people are going to start to think that something is really wrong with you. To which I said, something is really wrong with me. (laughs) Right? But there was a thought that occurred to me this morning that ties into all this, and we're going to bring this back in later, but I want to say it while I'm thinking about it. And that is this. Sometimes within Christianity, the perception is that as you become a Christian, your life becomes more ordered, more clean, uh, everything gets put together. But I think the exact opposite is true. That the more you fall in love with God, the more you try to live like Jesus Christ, the more you try to love others like Jesus, the messier your life becomes. And... We are, we are fighting against that image. That image that Christians have all their, their things together, that they have all the right answers, all the right things to do. And so the, the image that we present is not one of having everything right, but it's rather this image of never-ending dependence upon God. That in every moment that I live, every breath that I take, everything that I do, I need God. I need His grace, I need His mercy, I need His forgiveness, I need His help. Because I am nowhere near as good by myself as I am with God. Secondly, Jesus is thrust squarely to the center of the relationship between God and man. We cannot truly be in relationship with God without the reconciling work of Jesus. And we need to not forget that. Thus, the story that people hear from our lips when we talk about religion, heaven forbid we talk about religion, when we talk about church, when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about faith, what they should hear from us is that we are not perfect, we are flawed, but we are redeemed. We are redeemed through Jesus. And that is such a wonderful message, amen? 
I had to beg you for amens last week, so just go ahead and volunteer them whenever you feel, except for you, Machado. You can, you know, try to, try to keep it down. It's such a wonderful message, but as we move past the simple realization of our need for Jesus, there is an important question that we have to ask. Um, and that is, what does it actually look like to walk in the light with Jesus? It's a great image. It's this great, you know, figurative thing that we can sort of try to conceptualize. But if we are going to walk in the light with God through the power of Jesus Christ, then how do we actually do that? And furthermore, we talked about last week how the world is kind of in a little bit of chaos right now. You may or may not have noticed that. How can we tell if we are walking in the light, especially when the world is struggling to find its way, when there are so many definitions of what it means to walk in the light, when depending on who you talk to, they may tell you differently about what it means to walk in the light. So uh, how can we tell what it means? And there's something that I want to speak to you this morning that, that should be comforting to you, and that is this. As messed up as the world seems right now, as chaotic as it is, as much uh, hatred and argument and all these different things that are going on, this is not the first time that the world has been a place of chaos and confusion. It really isn't. It may feel that way, like we are reaching new heights of chaos and confusion. But this is not the first time that this has happened. So this issue... What it means to walk in the light is of concern to John who wrote this letter. And 1 John in particular was written to a church or a group of churches that were in crisis. And in particular, they were being uh, attacked by false teachers. So get this, this is pretty messed up, what was going on with them. Some individuals who had once been associated with the Christian community had adopted false beliefs about Jesus. Uh, particularly as it related to their understanding of who he was, and because they came to disagreement with the leaders of the church, they left the church. Okay? But evidently, after their departure, they continued to spread their teachings to those who remained in all the churches that John was writing to. And they went so far as to organize basically missionaries to go back into these communities and to spread this sort of false gospel and false understanding of who Jesus was with the goal of converting those churches to their beliefs about Jesus. And guess what happened within the communities? There was division, there was, there was confusion, and there was crisis. They didn't know how to answer this question. Well, what does it mean to walk in the light? Because they, they were people within their community, who were literally pulling them in different directions. So we have this passage, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. 
Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for this community for uh, the way that we come together each week to sing, to pray to show our love for you, to study your word. Father, as we dive into scripture this morning, may our eyes and ears be open to see and hear all that you want us to see and hear, Father. May we receive truth from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what are the keys to walking in the light? And there's a lot of words there, but it's actually pretty simple what John is trying to say to us. Uh, first, we must know and love the word of God. Again, starting in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Now we read this verse, and what are some of these verses, and what are some words that stick out to us, that stick out to you? Commands, certainly, stand out to me. Anything else? Truth, complete, liar, word, okay? So this sort of touches on some concepts that we're very familiar with. Um, and, and in general, probably our, our most common reaction to this is that what the writer is telling us to do is to know our Bibles and to know Scripture. That this is what the writer is talking about. But here's something that we sometimes fail to realize when we read passages like this. The communities that John was writing to, they did not have Bibles. They had no, they probably didn't have even Old Testament scripture. Although it's possible that they would have had access to it in some way. It's also possible that they might have had a letter or a gospel. Since John is writing to these communities, it makes sense that you could assume that that they had John's gospel. But we have to think about it in very different terms, okay? Because what they maybe have is a story about Jesus. And this story is what they have to base their entire knowledge and experience on. They don't have the Bibles that we have today. So why do we need to appreciate this distinction? Well, because when John talks about keeping commands, obeying, is he talking about something that you just open up and read, or is he talking about something that goes far beyond that? Well, what else could he mean if he doesn't mean opening Scripture? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, over to the book of John, chapter 1. The book of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the first thing that we should notice is, it's no wonder that John wrote 1 John. Right? Because all the images are there that we've seen so far, light and dark. But according to John, the Word is not a book. It's not an object. It is a person. The Word is Jesus. And therefore, looking back at what he says in 1 John, knowing and obeying the Word means that you know what? Jesus. And you obey who? Jesus, you are in this living relationship with Jesus. Knowledge of God in John's letter doesn't come from memorizing Scripture. Not that we shouldn't try to do that and try to know Scripture, but the knowledge that he talks about comes from knowing Jesus Christ. It moves beyond what you think, what you know, what you can memorize into this experience of who God is through Jesus Christ. The only way one can come to know God and what he wants then is through belief in Jesus, whose death was the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Some of you may remember that the prophet Jeremiah actually spoke about this when he said that the establishment of the new covenant, God would write his law upon the hearts of those who are his. He would write his law upon the hearts of those who are his. What this boils down to is this. It's pretty simple in John's thinking, okay? So let's just try to stay with him. If you know Jesus and you believe in Jesus, then what will you do? You will follow him. And by following Jesus, you will listen to what he tells you to do, his commands, and you will do them. You will obey. You will follow him wherever it is that he leads you. It will be an extension of who you are in Jesus Christ. Now this might sound a little bit confusing, but John helps us to understand this better. If we are going to walk in the light, to put it in the most simple way possible, we are to live as Jesus did. Look at verses, uh, the last part of verse 5 through 6. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live 
as Jesus did. Quick question. How do you feel about that? Okay, scared? It's, it's a difficult proposition, isn't it? Nearly impossible. It feels that way to us, doesn't it? To live as Jesus did. So it raises another super important question in our minds, right? What does it mean? If walking in the light means we live as Jesus did, then what does it mean to live as Jesus did? That's the next question that comes up. Because we know, as you've already said, it's no simple thing to just live like Jesus. You don't wake up on a Tuesday and decide to live like Jesus. Right? I mean, it's just not that simple. It's not like picking out your outfit for the day. Because in order to live like Jesus, we have to change ourselves radically. Jesus reflected the true nature of God. And so if we are going to live like Jesus, then we have to reflect God, which is part of why this whole relationship with Jesus has to be written on our hearts. It has to be inside of us. And yes, Jesus followed the commandments, and yes, he brought glory to God. But you could argue, and I think this is what I'm going to argue today. You could argue that one of the primary characteristics of Jesus was that he loved people. He loved people. He loved them radically. He loved them in ways that we would not and do not. He did not sit around and think about or write papers about what it meant to follow God. He instead got out and loved people, took care of them, told them about how much God loved them, and showed them God's tender heart. So if we are going to answer this question, okay, I want to walk in life and be like Jesus. Okay, then what does it mean to be like Jesus? I want to suggest that if you want to be the most like Jesus then it comes down to who you love, how you love, and what you love. Who you love, how you love, and what you love. In my preparation for this week, it seemed somewhat cheap to me. I, I, I struggled with this a little bit. It's like Tuesday, I was, I was um, praying and I was studying and I was, I was looking at some things and I, and I felt like I had this epiphany um, of something that I think I've known all along. Have you ever had those moments, right? Where it's like, I know this, but now I feel like I know it. And so it felt cheap to just say, well, it all comes down to love. It comes down to love. Um, Because that feels like the easy answer, and I'm not supposed to just stand up here and say it all comes down to love, because it feels eh, it's too easy. But as I spend more time thinking and praying about it, it occurred to me that as much as we talk about love, we probably undersell its importance a great deal, particularly in loving other people. We go on and on and on about our love for God. But we undersell the role of loving other people in the life of a Christian. So much of our relationship with God hinges on both our ability to receive love from God, to receive grace and mercy, to understand what that means for us, our commitment to staying in love with God, and our drive to love other people. This passage from Matthew is always, it's been one of my favorites because just the drastic nature of what Jesus says. But from Matthew chapter 22, 
Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I know I've shared this with you before, but I just want to say it again. It is startling to me that all the study, all the work, all the prayer, all the digging deep into whatever it is that you want to dig deep in about living a Christian life, every book you could read about discipleship, about decisions you should make for Jesus, about all those things, it actually only comes down to two things. Whether you love God with everything that you are and you love other people. And if you're not doing those two things, then it almost doesn't matter what else you're doing. I mean, that feels harsh, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. That you love God with everything that you are and that you love other people. Think for a second about the Sermon on the Mount. We covered it for how long? Well, how long was, was Noah roaming the earth, or the earth on the ark, right? It's probably somewhere in that range. We covered it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I want you to think about all the things we talked about. Here's what's startling about the Sermon on the Mount. I would say about 85% of it was about how we loved other people. And 15% of it was about things that related directly to God. Prayer, fasting, treasures in earth. But everything else was about how you honor God by loving other people, by not being hateful, by giving up more than you were asked for. So if we are going to walk in the light, and we are going to live like Jesus, then we are going to love those around us. Back to First John, if you've got your finger there, um, or someone else's finger there. Let's turn back over to First John chapter 2. And look at what he says again here. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister li- excuse me, lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I don't like this passage very much. Because it feels too true. And I see too much of myself in it. Jesus has some harsh words for us here. And he says, the bottom line is this. Our love for other people is one of the best indicators of whether we belong to God. It is one of the best indicators of whether we belong to God. Because here is the base truth. You cannot claim 
he says. Claim to be in relationship with the all-loving God and then refuse to love other people. Because if you refuse to love other people, your claim has been proven false. You do not love God. Your lack of love, in fact, shows how little you know about Him. And the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, we delved into these things. We are expected as children of God to forgive. We are to forgive as God forgave us and we will be forgiven in the same measure. We are expected as children of God to give more than what is demanded of us, even if that demand is unjust. We are told to love those we would label as enemies and pray for those who would persecute us. Jesus calls us unequivocally to stop loving in the way that we love and to start loving like God loves. To knock off this whole human way to love other people and to go beyond what we're comfortable with. Think about it in these terms as we talked about in the introduction. God has faced betrayal over and over and over again. And do you realize that at some point God had to accept that we were not going to stop betraying Him? That we were not going to stop choosing things besides Him? That, that we were not going to stop sinning? And if we made the rules there, what would we do? But God does something that is so not us. When He sees how far away we are from Him and how much and how we're not going to get there. When He sees this rebellion, when He sees our inability, He sends His Son Jesus here to die for us so that He can bring us into relationship with Him. That's bananas, people. It is not what we would do. But God calls us not to do what we would do, to do what He would do and to love like he loves god gave up his right to demand justice and instead gave mercy and sacrifice he knows what i'm talking about (laughs) therefore anyone who claims to walk in the light yet hates their brother or sister is in the darkness. And anyone who loves their brother or sister walks in the light. In the mind of the author, it's simple. And and here's how this works. Your hatred of a brother or sister keeps you in the dark. No matter what else you're doing, how many homeless people you're feeding, how many times you're praying, your hatred of a brother or sister keeps you in the dark. And guess what? When you are in the dark, what can you not do? You cannot see. You cannot see in the dark. This is really applicable to us. Because when we hold on to hatred, we cannot see. We cannot see how we are wrong to hold on to hatred. We cannot see how far away we have gotten from the love of God. 
And without those insights, we are not going to be able to find our way back to realizing the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. We are blinded. On the other side of that, however, and here's why I love the phrasing. I, I like the phrasing of things a lot of times just because the way that they write things, it, it makes sense. But look at what he says, starting in verse 9. This is, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. So the setup here is you have someone who says they're in the light, but what are they actually doing? They actually hate their brother and sister and therefore in the darkness. And then for the next one, he completely flips it. Anyone who loves their brother and sister. So what have they said? Nothing. But they love their brother and sister. And therefore, what does that show? That they walk in the light without having to make any claim whatsoever. Without having to say, I am a Christian or I believe their behavior shows that they are walking with God. So, how did Jesus love those around him? Jesus, or John, I should say, he, he doesn't give us a list of how we should love other people or how we should live like Jesus. He doesn't spell it out for us. There are no specific instructions. And this is probably for the best. Because by not defining love for us, we are forced to evaluate love on a different level. Because we are, after all, to love like God and not like us. And we all know how we do with instructions. So what did Jesus do? Well, he fed the hungry. He spent time with the sick, the, sick, the rejected, and the outcast. He went into people's homes that no one else would visit, ever. He set people free from the weight and burden of the lives they had been living by showing them the love of God. He washed the feet of his disciples, putting their needs over his, even though he was the master, and then a remarkable move. He washes the feet of the person who was going to betray him. He gave up his life willingly for a group of people that wanted to destroy him so that he might save them. And now... More than 2,000 years later, we are still talking about him. Amen? Because that kind of love changes things. It changes things. We have all sorts of reasons to not love others. Even those that we are the closest to. We find ourselves in moments where love is challenging. Last night, um, my son, Jed, had a difficult night. And it was the second difficult night in a row. And we were all exhausted from having Zeke's birthday party two months late. It takes us a while to do things in the Smith household. And he got upset about something, and he started crying, and he wouldn't stop. And the night before, he had cried for almost two hours. And once we sort of got him over one thing, it was the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and he just wanted to be upset. And it started again last night. And I was so tired 
and I was so angry. And this is someone that I love more than all of you save one person in this room. I was so angry and I was so frustrated. And I'm trying to reason with him and it's not working. And I'm just, I just can't handle it. And so I told Nisha, I need to give me like five minutes. And I went into his room and I sat in front of his bed in the dark. And I prayed for God to just help me. You know, I was so, ah. And I didn't like what I was seeing or feeling in myself. No joke, this is what happened. I'm walking back into our bedroom and I hear Jed talking to Nisha and Nisha starts singing Jesus Love Me, Jesus Loves Me, which is, um, that's the magic song <laughs> for when we need to remind ourselves sometimes that even though things are hard, it's okay. And so I lay down in bed and Nisha's over here and Jed is here and I'm here and I start singing Jesus Loves Me with Nisha to Jed. And then Jed started singing Jesus Loves Me with us. And I started crying like a baby. Started crying like a baby. There is no easy way to love like God. And everyone in this room is carrying around hurts, prejudices, decisions we've made about people because of what they've done or haven't done. All of us in this room have people that we need to forgive. And all of us in this room need to be forgiven. And here's the good news. That might feel bad. It might seem like, oh, couldn't we just not talk about that for one Sunday? Couldn't we just make it easy? But you know what? Living the Christian life, living like Jesus, does not put your life in order it makes it messier. Because we will be the ones who will look into difficult relationships and we will say, everyone else would walk away from you, but I won't. Because God hasn't walked away from me. And therefore, even though I don't know what the answer is and I don't know how to handle this and I have all these feelings about you and I don't know what to do with them. I am going to press forward and find God in this. And I am going to love you. Even if it kills me. I am going to love you. Because you know what, church? That is what Jesus would do. That is what Jesus would do.
We are to be defined not by church things, but by how much we love other people in the name of Jesus Christ who has loved us, has forgiven us, and has given our lives meaning and purpose. And we will not act like everyone else. We will not love like this world. We will love like God. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words which challenge us. May we allow our hearts to be transformed by the knowledge of you through Jesus Christ so that his ways are written on our very hearts. God, may we live like Jesus did, acting out his values in our lives, being the people that he has told us to be. Not that he suggested we be, but that he told us to be as children of the kingdom of God. And Father, may we love people radically as He did. May we push through the challenges. It's not going to be easy. It is hard. By its very nature, it is hard. But You have called us to love like God. And Father, may we relentlessly love like You. When we have answers, when we have no answers, when we know what to do, when we don't have the first clue what to do, God, may we still love like You. May we be those who love further than anyone else because you have loved us in jesus name we pray amen if you need any prayers or encouragement this morning you want to know this god who loves you we invite you to come forward as we stand singing this song together